Fun. Whoa. Now, good morning, everyone. Uh, glad you're with us this morning. And um, I'm going to just ask if you can back me down a little bit, Bob, because I might get worked up and then it'll be screaming at you. Uh, no, uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning as we're continuing in Romans. And uh, in Romans chapter 1, we got a kind of a few key ideas that set the tone for the whole rest of the letter. We got some bad news, right? God is going to pour out wrath on ungodliness and unrighteousness. But we also got some good news, some really good news, that we can be saved from that wrath, right? Salvation comes through righteousness, the righteousness of God. Now, we can't attain that on our own, but righteousness is credited to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, right? He's the standard for righteousness, Jesus is, but he's also the means by which we can attain that righteousness or have it for ourselves through faith. That's the good news, right? That's the gospel of Jesus, and Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. To those who believe. So that's some uh, pretty good stuff. And then uh, Paul goes into four kind of trains of thought or religious belief systems which really don't cut it when it comes to salvation. Each of these ways of thinking, he says, is flawed because their idea of righteousness, well, it falls short of God's standard of righteousness, and ultimately, these ways of thinking can't make us right with God. Now, the first problem that he covered, we talked about last week, was the problem with pagan thinking. And just a little bit of a recap, paganism, in general, contained uh, often an element of nature worship. You know, we just sang this amazing song about God holding it all and being the creator of it all. And all these different aspects of creation. Loved it. I love that song. But it talks about God, who is the creator, holding it all together. When it comes to pagan thinking, it's disregarding God. Worshiping creation rather than the creator. And and there's a a problem with that. Because here's where it leads. When we ignore God and take Him out of the picture... Well, then there are no righteous standards. And when there are no righteous standards, anything goes. The problem with this way of thinking, this pagan thinking, is that it doesn't lead us to righteousness. In fact, it brings out the worst in us. Which means it is so deserving of God's wrath. So that's what Paul talked about. That's what we covered uh, last week. The problem with pagan thinking. The next thing this morning that we're going to be talking about is the problem with moralism. There's a problem with moralism, and we'll get to what that is, but the important thing is that finally we move on to chapter (laughs) 2. Right? So we are making progress through Romans. So Romans chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or in the Bible apps, but there will be verses up on the screen as well. Romans 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But those, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, so that's the passage we're, we're diving into today. Now you want to follow a little bit Paul's progression, right? He, he talks about salvation and how that can be attained. He talks about pagan thinking, which eliminates God and therefore eliminates his righteous standards. And without those standards, anything goes. Now what rises in its place is what we will call moralism. Right? Humanity begins to make its own distinctions about which behaviors are right and wrong about which behaviors are acceptable and not, which ones are good and bad. And then we become the judge and jury on what moral behavior is good enough. Right? That's where this goes next. So we're going to define moralism kind of like this. Uh, here's the definition. Moralism is making personal judgments about someone's righteousness using a sliding scale that's based on our own rationale and thinking. Okay, that's a little little loaded, but moralism is making personal judgment about someone's righteousness based on our own rationale and thinking. See, it kind of assumes that our perspective is the right one and that God is going to judge things the way that we see them. Now what could be possibly wrong with that way of thinking, right? And that's what Paul gets into here. So verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this verse because there's a lot here. First, a couple of things about this idea of us being judges. Uh, first of all, you can't make a judgment without a standard. Right? You can't determine whether or not someone's behavior is good enough without acknowledging that there is some sort of righteous standard that exists. But the second thing is this, how does it make any sense that we would be the ones who would make that determination for who should enter heaven? Right? Like we're terrible judges. We have selfish and impure motives. We don't judge rightly like God does. And then third, like whatever standard we use, that ultimately condemns us too, Paul says. Why? Because when you set a standard for what is good enough, you actually have to be able to live up to it. Right? You have to meet those standards. The problem is we end up breaking those standards anyway. And so 
then what the solution is for us is that we just keep adjusting the standard. Right? What we drew as the line in the sand before, well, now we move it to a new location. Right? Because, well, we didn't quite make it, but now the line is here. We'll see how this plays out. So moralism ends up getting us into this kind of comparison game. Right? The, mor- the moralist can, all- here's kind of a key point, the moralist can always find a comparison that affirms he or she is good enough to warrant heaven. Right? That's why it's a sliding scale. Let me give you some examples. Well, lying is bad. But it's not as bad as cheating, right? And cheating's not as bad as, say, embezzlement. But embezzlement is not as bad as taking something by force, like burglary or violent burglary. That's really bad, right? So where do you draw the line? Lustful thoughts are bad, another example. But not as bad as pornography or masturbation, but those things are nowhere near as bad as having an affair, which is nothing compared to rape, right? So again, where are we drawing the line? Where are we drawing the line? Teasing and name-calling is bad, but not as bad as, you know, some sort of verbal bullying. Verbal bullying, well, that's not as bad as physical violence against someone. Beating someone is not as bad as murder. And even worse is being like a mass murderer or a serial killer. And of course, the ultimate worst is Hitler. Right? That's where it all leads. Now, do you see the problem? Like, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? And we usually draw it just past where we view ourselves good enough on the moralism scale. (laughs) Right? Because we can't draw a line that we can't measure up to. That couldn't possibly be it. We can't be like, well, the line is right here, but unfortunately, I didn't make it. (laughs) No, we've got to move the line in the sand. And so we draw the line between uh, righteous and unrighteous in that like small little space that separates us from the really bad person. The moralist can always find a comparison that affirms he or she is good enough to warrant heaven. Like, maybe we're no saint like Mother Teresa, but at least we're not as bad as Hitler. Right? We're somewhere in between. There's a pastor and a teacher that I listen to a lot of podcasts from. Uh, His name is Stephen Armstrong. Uh, And... uh, he gave this helpful example, and I'm just going to kind of read what he wrote, almost most of it, word for word, because I thought it's really helpful in addressing this. Right? And he says this, Do you think Hitler was a liar? Yes. Well, have you ever lied? So do you think Hitler ever spoke a hateful thought? Of course. Well, have you spoken a hateful thought? Do you suppose Hitler ever stole something or deceived someone or coveted or betrayed or insulted someone? Undoubtedly. But haven't you done these very same things too? Yes, you have. But Hitler murdered people, many people, and I've never done that. So based on that, you judge yourself to be morally superior. Now remember, you share just about every other manner of sin with the man. But you found one difference. And that's what justifies you. Is that what you're resting on to say, you're not as bad as Hitler? 
That one thing. Now, in our minds, it's a pretty big thing, right? But whether you realize it or not, here's, here's what you've determined. You've determined that Satan, the demons, and mass murderers like Hitler are the only ones not getting into heaven. Mass murderers. That's where you're going to draw the line. Now ask yourself, how confident are you that that's the standard God is using? Are you willing to base your entire eternity on that one difference between you and Hitler? Right? Even though you do many of the same things that he's done. And what Paul is saying is that, look, you failed to meet the standards too. He says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Right? And then he goes on. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, and I'm going to pause here and say this, you know, a lot of times when we're reading Scripture passages and it comes up on the word man, it means mankind and it means men and women, all humanity, and, and like we've got to point that out because we want to make sure that we're including women in that. So, uh, because that's a really positive thing, but here's a really negative thing. So I just want to point out that when it says, oh man, it includes you women too. <laughs> right? You're not exempt from this. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness for forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says, look, you, you think God is going to overlook all the other sinful things you've done and that everyone else has done? No. Paul says he's not. If we fail to measure up to the standard that actually matters, then we too are deserving of judgment and wrath. And guess what? We all fail to measure up to the standard that matters. God's standard of righteousness. Now, God is kind to us, Paul says. He is kind to us. He bears with our sinfulness. He's patient with us. But he does so in order for us to come to a place where we are penitent. Right? The reason he's patient and doesn't throw down lightning bolts on us sinful people is so that we'll turn our hearts to him. You know, Peter talked about this too in 2 Peter, and uh, I'm going to warn Rob, there's a bunch of verses on this slide here, but I'm just going to verse 9, so if you want to pop to that one. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting for us to come to a place where we recognize our sin and are sorry for that and we turn back to Him. That's what He's about. And Paul says, look, if, if we think lightly of that kindness towards us and we neglect to do that, if anyone just presumes he's going to overlook the sinful offenses, 
and our refusal to have a change of heart, then you're storing up wrath for yourself, Paul says. So Paul is basically saying that this sliding scale of moralism isn't the right scale. And our level of morality, no matter where we think we land, isn't sufficient to save us. And he goes on in verse 6. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, especially when they kind of stand on their own, it might seem like God is judging us worthy or unworthy of heaven based on our good deeds. Right? But remember, again, we've got to put this in context. Paul has already talked about how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Right? It's through faith in Jesus that we put our faith and trust in him that we attain the righteousness we need and therefore salvation. Plus, he just mentioned the importance of coming to repentance, which of course leads us to putting our faith and trust in Jesus. So this isn't about earning salvation. It's about those who are believers, who have come to repentance, who have put their faith in Jesus, being rewarded for continuing in their well-doing and keeping their eyes fixed on the glory, honor, and immortality that we're looking for, that we're longing for. You're going to receive your reward, Paul says. Eternal life. And likewise, those who are unrepentant. He talks about that as being self-seeking, like rather than seeking out Jesus, and living according to the will of God. Those who are disobedient and unrighteous, there is a wrath and a fury that awaits them and a judgment. Right? That's the picture Paul's painting here. And he says then, this is the reality, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He uses that phrase a number of times here. Um, and, and we understand that first all of God's plan kind of came to fruition through the Jewish people. So he means that, and then it was extended to all the other nations. So the Jew first and then the Gentile. But it's another way also of him, him saying, uh, this is the plan for everyone. This is the plan for everyone. And then verse 11, he says, for God shows no partiality. Right, like when it comes to the moralism and the sliding scales of morality that we tend to create, God's not like that. Like we find a way to justify ourselves. Or those that we think should be okay to get into heaven based on the good people that they are. We aren't going to set a standard that doesn't include us or the people we love. We usually just draw the line right past where we view ourselves to be, but God doesn't use that standard of measurement. He has a different standard. He's not partial like we are, is what Paul's saying here. He shows no partiality. He doesn't show distinction or favoritism like we do because his judgment is perfect and his standards are perfect too. So if we could sum up moralism or the problem with moralism, the summary is this. 
The problem with moralism is our standards aren't God's standards. We don't judge impartially. We're all guilty of not measuring up even to our own standards. That's the problem with moralism. Now we've got to ask ourselves, though, if that's the case, if this is what Paul's talking about, what do, what do we take away from all this? Right? Well, well, of course, the first thing is that personally, we need to make sure we aren't setting some imaginary standard for who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Right? We have God's word to help us understand that. That's what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now. It's not up to us to create the standard, to second-guess the standard, or to talk about how, well, I don't think that's really what God's standard is, even though that's what God's Word says. Look, we don't judge properly. We're terrible judges, and we're all guilty of missing the mark ourselves. Right? So we've got to remember that first and foremost. But beyond that, beyond just the here's what the perspective we need to have, like practically, I think we have to consider this question. How do we connect with others who seem to have this kind of moralist mentality? Right? That's a question we want to ask ourselves today. How do we connect with others, with the gospel, with others who seem to have a moralist mentality? Because if you ask most people, they probably think a lot like we likely did. Like, oh, well, we're good, good enough to get into heaven. I mean, at the very least, they don't think they've done anything bad enough to disqualify them. Right? In other words, they, they realize, okay, I'm not perfect, but again, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, that may be true. But it doesn't matter that someone doesn't think they're as bad as Hitler. The problem is that they aren't as good as Jesus. They aren't as good as Jesus, and none of us are. So a couple of things I think we can do with this. First of all, uh, we need to lovingly help them see they don't measure up to God's standards. Right? We have to lovingly help them see they don't measure up to God's standards. Key word there is lovingly. Right? We all understand and know that, you know, Power washing them with truth is probably not going to feel real good. Resist. We've got to be loving. But we've got to help people see that uh, they don't measure up to God's standards. Because unless someone sees their need for forgiveness from Jesus, they aren't likely to surrender to him, are they? So for the person who's living with a moralist mindset, measuring themselves on some sort of sliding scale of goodness, we just want to help them see that they don't measure up because nobody does. And I realize this can be a pretty tough shell to break. Right? There are a lot of people who see themselves as pretty good people. And honestly, <laughs> there are some people out there who seem nicer, kinder, and better people than many who claim to be Christians. And by the way, that's not supposed to be <laughs> Like, that's more an indictment on us than it is on them. And it's a positive statement on them. But for all of us, the standard is Jesus. The standard for all of us is perfection. All it takes 
For us to measure up on the moral scale is to be perfect like Jesus. Just do that and you're in. Except we can't do it. None of us can. So again, we need to remind people it doesn't really matter how good anyone thinks they are compared to somebody else. We're all in the same boat. No one measures up and no one ever will. Only Jesus measured up. That's why he alone was uniquely qualified to be God's perfect sacrifice. It's why Jesus and Jesus alone is the only means of attaining salvation. Only he can make us right with God. So we need to lovingly help them see they don't measure up to God's standards. That's the first thing. I think a second thing is this. Uh, We can often start by sharing with them how we ourselves have come up short. Like, share your own shortcomings. Paul did. When he was writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, a couple of verses there, 12 through 16, listen to his words that he wrote to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And that is a powerful, powerful thing to say. Paul is admitting that he fell so far short of the moral standard. He genuinely considered himself to be the worst of all sinners, the foremost of all sinners. But he recognized that even for him, God was willing to extend mercy and grace. And I think when we're willing to admit to others we don't have it all together, that we need a Savior, it can help them see their own need. Like, yeah, it's difficult to break through for those who seem to be pretty good people. To see all their really good things is really amounting to nothing. It can be tough to convince them that their goodness is not actually good enough in God's eyes. But I think we need to try. And fortunately, this is the third thing, we have a secret weapon. Well, it's not really all that secret, but we have a secret weapon, the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. You may remember... Uh, back when we did our Holy Spirit series, um, we talked about how one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict people or convince people, unbelievers, of sin. Right? John 16, 8. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Specifically, then, Jesus said, look, he, he would convict the world of people of sin because they don't yet know him. Right? So the Holy Spirit will do that. He would help them see the righteousness of Jesus, how he's the standard and the means of attaining salvation. And he would help them recognize that there is a judgment that's coming for those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. 
Right? Does all that sound familiar? I hope so. The things that John talked about, Paul is talking about here too, right? So we should be praying for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to those around us. Now, in that spirit, for a few minutes here, we're going to take some time to pray. And just going to give us a couple of minutes of quiet. Haley's going to play for us for a little bit, or not for us, but she's going to play in the background for a little bit. And I want to ask you to consider, who are those people for you that you would say, yep, they, they think they're good enough on this sliding scale, this moralistic thinking. They seem to have that going on in their life. And we want to take a few minutes as we close to pray for those who might fall into that category. Right? Like they see themselves as a pretty good person, and because of that, they just, they just do not recognize their own need for Jesus. So take a few minutes. If you need to, ask God to just kind of reveal to you some people in your life who you feel like are living in that way. They think they're good enough. They think they measure up. They're not as bad as Hitler. And so certainly God's going to let them in. We live in a culture and a climate and even a religious atmosphere generally where, where that is the thinking. Right? Just don't do anything too bad that God's not going to let you into heaven. Wrong scale. Wrong scale. So think of those people who might be in your life. Allow God to bring those to mind and just take a moment, a few moments, to pray for them that God would break through. That the Holy Spirit would convince them, convict them of that need for Jesus. So let's take a few minutes and do that now before we close. I don't know if as you're praying in this moment if it's difficult to come up with individuals or if it's like me as I begin to pray for certain individuals, others come to mind that really seem to fit in a lot of ways into these categories. And Let's take a moment, and I just want to pray for all of us in this, that we would continue also to be praying for these individuals throughout our week, uh, and that God would continue to reveal that to us and see how he may have us move toward them in sharing the love of Christ. Father God, we are grateful for your mercy and your grace. We're grateful that despite the fact that none of us measure up on the, the true scale of righteousness, that you have made a way for us in Christ Jesus, that you have extended to us the mercy and grace that we need, that you offer it to all. We're grateful for that for ourselves, but we come before you with these individuals who come to mind. Maybe individuals who are living some, some pretty good lives in the world's eyes, but have not yet seen their need for you. Lord God, we pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would break through the walls that are keeping them from coming to know you, coming to see you. We pray that uh, you would continue to place them on our hearts, that we, would, that we would be seeking you, Holy Spirit, 
to be working in their lives to help them see their need for Jesus. We pray that we would see all individuals rightly with the the scale that you use and that it would break our hearts when we see those who who think they don't need Jesus or just don't realize their need for him. We want to lift them before you. Pray that you would be working in powerful ways and that you would use us however you see fit to be an instrument to be someone who can speak into their lives and, and lead them toward Jesus. That we would do that lovingly to help them see how they do fall short and that they need you. That we would continue to seek you, Holy Spirit, in that. That we'd be willing to share how we fall short. Not be too prideful to admit the fact that we need you desperately. Even in the good things we do, they still aren't enough. They just don't measure up to Jesus who is perfect. Help them see their need. Help us to share it. Give us the words. Give us the heart. Give us the opportunity. Give us the courage. Whatever it is we need. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus with grateful hearts that you hear us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.